Welcome to episode four of What Would Jane Do? In this podcast, we try and find an early 19th century perspective on very 21st century problems. So today it's not so much about a problem, but I thought I'd have a look at Jane Austen's take on one of our very own cultural phenomenons, and that is the superhero film. I don't know if, like me, you've spent a lot of the last decade or so going to see either Marvel or DC superhero films. I think I certainly have spent quite a few hours. And I was thinking about the dominance of this particular genre in our cinemas and our movie picture houses and thinking about the version of the heroes that we seem to prefer. Because I have a theory that every era makes heroes or thinks about the nature of the hero for its own time. So what does this fixation on superheroes say about ours? And I thought one way of finding a a light upon this particular issue is to look what was happening back in Jane Austen's time and what kind of heroes they made out. So in this podcast, we're going to have a look at two people who she knew at the time as writers, that's Samuel Richardson, and Henry Fielding, and have a look at the discussion about the nature of the hero that Jane Austen herself inherited, and then see how it works out in her books, in particular looking at her discussion of what makes a heroine in Northanger Abbey. Anyway, let's start with heroes. So where do you fall? Uh, Is your favourite Superman, Black Panther, uh, Black Widow, Ant-Man? Thor. We all have our favourites. I think possibly my favourite might be Wonder Woman at the moment, just because it was so refreshing to see uh, a really interesting female character. Well, scratch that. Maybe not really interesting, but certainly more interesting than has been done before come out in the superhero franchise. And I also liked all that stuff about how she might learn about the world of war, because that had an interesting moral journey for her to, to go on. But you're no doubt sitting there thinking of your own faves. But anyway, what kind of heroes were there around at the time of Jane Austen? Well, I'd say the kind of DC universe in her era was by a man called Samuel Richardson. Now, Richardson, if you don't already know him, is famous for very long novels. Now, I've got just one of them sitting here. I'm talking seriously long. Actually, his most famous book is called Clarissa, and uh, it's up there as possibly one of the most, uh, well, the longest novels in the English language. The one estimate of word count is nine, hold on, it's 969,000 words. That's just shy of a million words. And there aren't that many of us who've actually sat down and read it from cover to cover. How I actually managed to read Clarissa was by when I was working in London and I had a commute. So I carried this huge book, which was like a brick, and I thought it'd be quite useful as an anti-mugging device if ever anyone would (laughs) be so foolish to take me on whilst I had Clarissa in my handbag. Of course, that's a a modern way of reading the novel all in one volume. In 
Samuel Richardson's day, it would have been published in volumes, in instalments, much more like a soap opera. So it would be very rare that you'd sit down and read the whole thing in one go. It's much more a case of you do it part by part. Or going back to last week's episode, it would be like watching Game of Thrones season by season rather than trying to do it in one sitting, which I believe would take you about 60 hours to do. So anyway, Samuel Richardson is well known for long books and the format he chose for his novels tended to be the epistolary novel. That's just a way of saying a novel which is told through the exchange of letters. But let's think about Clarissa as, if we're going to give her a superhero, let's call her Mystique. That's the Jennifer Lawrence character in the X-Men universe who has this sort of tragic Uh, trajectory. Sorry if this is a plot spoiler to any of you. So she's a kind of mystique. Because Clarissa starts off the novel as a daughter who's repressed in her household, but she's very virtuous. And she makes the what turns out to be the fatal mistake of falling for the swaggering, charming hero called Lovelace, who's your devilish gentleman, um, you know, it's one of the most famous devilish gentlemen in literature, a kind of prototype, I'd say, to a Wickham. And this all takes a very long time. This seduction and fall and uh, suffering um, is what takes all those almost million words to tell you. There's a lot more to it than that, obviously, many subplots and other things. But that is the, the heart of the novel. So we have here a heroine who is inherently good, who makes one small error. And that error unleashes a whole kind of tragic consequences which I'm afraid uh, involves her rape and all sorts of terrible things but she remains virtuous and good through all of that. It's a very high standard for female behaviour and a very low standard, conniving, charming and all the rest of it for male behaviour. So the heroes in that and the heroines, the woman is expected to be perfect, almost kind of superpower goodness and the man is no better than he should be. He's, he's you know, a rake, is the 18th century term for that. And that's not the only book where we have that kind of face-off between the good heroine and the evil gentleman. Uh, another book by Samuel Richardson, which is called Pamela, has a, a, a sort of parallel face-off, though from a different social standing, Pamela is a servant in the house of Mr. B. Uh, And Mr. B is the one who's trying to seduce her. And because she's so virtuous, virtue is rewarded. So again, we have a superpower here of Pamela being sticking by her gun. She's not going to go to bed with her employer, even though perhaps many others have beforehand. And he tries every means at his possession to persuade her and eventually sees that marriage is the only answer So can you see there's a kind of similar face-off there, but this one is the trajectory is towards happiness. Now, these were incredibly popular, these books. Um, They were bestsellers. They were the things that people would rush down to to buy and to get from the circulating library. So they really struck a chord. These heroes and heroines really struck a chord with the 18th century audience. But not everybody thought that they were realistic or even... In, readable in a sense uh, and they were ripe for um, being made a mockery of so if we have Richardson as one universe we put him over there as the Richardson universe what came out as a result is the fielding rival universe of heroes where the 
version of what it took to be a hero is absolutely written with a mind to what was going on in Richardson. And Fielding starts with a spoof called Shamala, not a very um, far away pun, is it, from Pamela, the original title. And that book kind of just makes fun of the Pamela uh, Mr. B relationship. But then Fielding, I think he must get quite interested in what makes a hero because he then writes at more length a book called, there we got it here, Joseph Andrews. And this book reverses the gender relationship. So instead of a virtuous servant girl, we've got a serving man. Instead of the rapacious Mr. B, you've got the lecherous Miss um, Lady Booby. Again, we're in the world of comedy. And the tension in the novel is between the good, virtuous man resisting temptation, but it's always kind of slightly sent up that how can this man be so virtuous when basically Lady Booby is offering him herself on a platter. There's a sort of mocking of, well, it's a sort of affectionate mocking of the innocence, supposed innocence of the, the, the protagonist. And then Fielding thinks, well, no, I haven't finished with this subject yet, because he then goes on to write probably his best novel, which is one called Tom Jones. Again, he's rivaling Richardson in the length here. He's obviously decided he's got more to say. Uh, and Tom Jones is a fascinating study of an imperfect hero. So if we said that Clarissa was a kind of mystique, uh, I would say that Pamela, the servant girl with Mr. B, is a kind of perfect figure. So she's more of a Wonder Woman. But when we get to the Fielding universe, we've got Shamala, which is a kind of Ant-Man parody of the whole kind of hero idea. We've got Joseph, uh, Joseph Andrews, who's more like a Spider-Man, a kind of coming of age hero story. And that would make Tom Jones more of an Iron Man. So a flawed hero who's got to work out how to end up with his equivalent of Pepper Potts, who is the beautiful and virtuous Sophia uh, in this particular novel. It's more complex. It's more nuanced. Tom is a red blooded, essentially good hearted hero, but he does have his affairs along the way, which was a bit ris very risque for the novel in that day particularly a novel read by families, and that's what Jane Austen's household was. They read this together. So he triumphs despite his flaws and despite his falls from moral purity, and he goes all the way down to ending up in prison. And we're warned that this is the kind of book we're getting right in the very start of this book, where Fielding says the bill of fare is human nature, which is diverse, and there's no pictures of perfection for him. And at the end, he concludes that there is not to be found a worthier man and woman than his hero, Tom Jones, and his wife, Sophia. Uh, though I would note that Sophia gets to play the straight woman to the very twisty path of the man. She she never falls, you know, commits a, a faux pas at all. She's, she's left pure. So a flawed hero... Uh, Fielding's version of human nature is that we aren't supermen. Um, we are much more, much more compromised by our choices we make in our life. And actually, it's the journey that makes it worthwhile. It's the learning journey. And the interesting thing is the conversation didn't stop there. 
Um, the reason I'm spending so long on this is that Jane Austen absolutely knew all of this nuance. Um, she she knew all these novels because I'm going to now go to what was one of her favourite novels. She mentions it several times, both in her books and um, just in her letters and elsewhere. And that is Samuel Richardson's Sir Charles Grandison. Please enjoy the length of this one. J.K. <laughs> uh, Rowling has nothing on long, long books of the 18th century. Sir Charles Grandison is the Captain America of the piece. Uh, he's morally pure. It's not clear if he's actually uh, an answer to Tom Jones. It's possible that he was a, an answer or it's just a response to uh, sort of reader feedback because was asked by people to try and write an answer to the Lovelace rapist figure from Clarissa. Uh, what could you do with a morally pure hero and so this particular hero Sir Charles Grandison if you actually sit down and read the book he does manage not to be annoying which is quite an achievement he does save the heroine right at the beginning of the the book and, and later on too but he has some moments of brave anti-hero behavior in that he refuses to fight a duel so he He's the equivalent of Superman not killing anybody, you know, that kind of trope from the superhero universe. And he also sticks to his word, even though it's against his heart, in that he's a bit like um, Edward Ferrer's with that prior engagement thing, which is one of the main plot drivers in Sense and Sensibility, which perhaps Jane Austen, I mean, it's not an unusual idea, but it, it was it's already in Sir Charles Grandison, so she may have picked it up from there. And at the end, Richardson is thinking about the nature of the hero because he wants to argue that we don't have to have these flawed heroes. He says, It is surely both delightful and instructive to dwell sometimes on this bright side of things. So rather than sort of go tumble into beds with un, you know, unmarried women like Tom Jones... Um, you can see the hero who doesn't put a foot wrong, Sir Charles Grandison, the brighter side of human nature, in other words. And he goes on to justify this by saying, he that aims at the heavens, which yet he is sure to come short of, is like to shoot higher than he who aims at a mark within his reach. So his defence of writing these superheroes in an 18th century sense is that these are more life... Well, these make the reader better so we have our heroes to aspire to where we won't make the same level as them but we'll fall that much higher by having them before us so it's an it's an uh, argument saying that reading novels can improve your nature and your actual behavior which is a very um, big claim for literature isn't it but it's certainly not the first person to make that claim So that's the the two universes dominating the novel in the 18th century. The Fielding universe, who maybe is more like the Marvel universe, because I think he's still a bit more popular now than poor old Samuel Richardson, which to us is actually quite a tough read now because of the, the moral instruction, which is at the heart of what he wants to do. Though I would urge you to go and read all of these if you've got um, 
got some time or at least dip into them because they are really fascinating to see how Jane Austen has taken similar material and changed it. So let's move on from um, the battle of the hero between Fielding and Richardson and have a look at what Jane Austen is doing. There is obviously many ways you can talk about this in Jane Austen, but I was thought it was interesting to look at the nature of the hero and the heroine in Northanger Abbey because it is explicitly where she is most interested in talking about the nature of the, the heroine by the way she handles Catherine. And of course, with, Heather, with Jane Austen, it's clever and it is wry. And it makes me laugh. So I thought I'd share it with you. So right at the start of Northanger Abbey, she says that Catherine, who starts off as very much as a tomboy, from 15 to 17, she was in training for a heroine. So she has in mind not only the gothic heroines of Anne Radcliffe and those kind of books, but she knows about the perfect heroines of the Pamela's and the even Tom Jones, Sophia, that, you know, that there are these people who have adventures that you can be like. But she has the misfortune of living in a quiet village where not very much happens. And Jane Austen states in that beautifully uh, incomparable narratorial voice she has, But when a young lady is to be a heroine, the perverseness of 40 surrounding families cannot prevent her. Something must and will happen to throw a hero in her way. So perversely, nobody wants to spoil her happiness in amongst the the 40 surrounding families. They're all just rather nice neighbours. So she has to wait for her big chance. And that is when she's taken by the Allen family to Bath. And we get lots of bathos. Bathos means a kind of bringing down of expectations in what happens in the beginning of Northanger Abbey. Actually, in the first page, because we're told that her father is not at the least addicted to locking up his daughters. So we don't have some gothic, cruel baron here to make the heroine's life a misery. Uh, We have a perfectly decent father (laughs) And he also doesn't later stand in the way of Catherine's brother James getting engaged to Isabella Thorpe, which at the level of the reader we can see is a very imprudent match. But Catherine thinks that this is her bosom buddy marrying her brother and couldn't be happier. But um, that certain signals through the text that that isn't really what's going on. Anyway, that's just Jane being very clever. Uh, and in the relationship between our hero and heroine, because remember we've been told he's going to emerge, Henry Tilney, it's interesting that he doesn't expect Catherine to be extraordinary. In fact, their relationship seems to consist of him rather enjoying her admiration of him and the fact that he can tease her, which he enjoys doing at great length, particularly stoking up her anticipation of a very gothic existence that she might have when she visits his home at Northanger Abbey. But where the heroism actually comes in, because the usual uh, outlets are not available, there isn't this repressive paternal f- figure. Well, or is there? But there isn't the, the the father figure and the sort of delayed engagement thing or any of those things that might happen in a gothic novel and the incarceration and mystic nuns and haunting monks, none of that stuff. But what we do have is the heroism of making up your own mind it's the small decisions that matter so it's not the big it's not fighting the duel or exploring the castle that is uh, heroic it is for example deciding 
to with to stand up for what you know to be right. So in the bath sequence in this short novel, Catherine is pressured to go several times pressured to go on a trip to Bristol, quite a long way from Bath, because James wants to spend the time with Isabella Thorpe and John Thorpe wants to go along too and won't go without Catherine as his partner. And they're all pressuring her. So that's her brother, her best friend and her best friend's brother, all pressurising her, getting in her way of her keeping her engagement with the Tilneys, which she would much rather keep. But by the by, she still does it because she has made, given her word that she would be available. And it takes a lot to stand against that triumvirate, that power trio, because they are her social circle or have been for much of the time in Bath. And it clearly shows that the reason why we root for her as a heroine isn't because she's particularly witty or particularly clever, because she's neither of those things. It's because basically she's really sweet She's good-hearted, she thinks the best of people, she's innocent and a bit gullible, but she basically, we, I suppose we feel a bit protective of her as it goes on, because she is amongst people with much less pleasant characters. She does lose her head a bit when she goes to Northanger Abbey. When she acts like a heroine of a gothic novel and dreams up a plot involving murder and all sorts of other things she goes completely off the rails that kind of heroism is not available to her she just makes herself look silly but she does get a kind of validation at the end because it does turn out to be a bit of a dastardly gent in the piece which is the Tilney's father and who I'm sure it is, I shouldn't worry about plot spoilers here but he does throw her out at the end when he finds that uh, she's not going to inherit a lot of money so she's not a good prospect for his son as he'd hoped and so she's made to go home on her own which for a sort of young girl at that time from her class was almost unheard of and the validation comes from her mother at the end Uh, her mother says you were always a sad little shatter-brained creature but now you must have been forced to have your wits about you So she has grown up by the fact that she had to negotiate an unfamiliar journey on her own with no protection. So it's kind of, well done, Catherine. So that's the kind of heroism Jane Austen is interested in. It's the heroism of the small decisions, the standing out against the crowd, the being brave, I think, and courageous, but it's not courageous that you're you're fighting massive armies. It's you're fighting your battles for your integrity and that's the kind of if there's a superhero that's the kind of superhero she's interested in so are there no superheroes in Jane Austen at all the obvious answer would be well no of course there isn't because that's not the world of her novels her world is sort of realism social comedy but actually I think there is one really interesting one which is Mr. Darcy. It's not because I think Jane Austen's made him a superhero. I think it's because we have done that in our time. So Mr. Darcy has become like the the byword for the brooding romantic hero. And, you know, you often see people saying, oh, I wish I had my Mr. Darcy. We've made him into this kind of, kind of super romantic hero. His superpower... He's like Superman in this way, if I'm going to give him his superhero identity, because he comes from another planet and his other planet is wealth. 
So when he arrives at the Neverfield Ball, it's a bit like saying he's come from outer space because he's arrived with such a large price tag around his neck of 10,000 a year. He's the billionaire amongst the, you know, the local community. But if you actually look at him, you see that he's not that, he does have his moments, but Jane Austen doesn't see him as a superhero because A, at the beginning at that ball, when he refuses to dance with Lizzie, he's either socially shy, which is the kind of Matthew McFadden version of him in the film version with Kira Knightley, or he's too proud, which I suppose is more on the Colin Firth end of this uh, interpretation in the BBC series of Pride and Prejudice. Either of those is a kind of flaw or a fault. And he has to go on his own journey, as he says at right at the end of the book when they're sort of settling their uh, what what had happened to them both over the course of the novel. So he's definitely flawed. And if he is Superman, then that rather wonderfully makes Lady Catherine de Burr like General Zog in Man of Steel. Now bear with me. General Zog is the one who comes after Superman to because he's got he's carrying the DNA from the lost planet. And Superman holds this special DNA inside him. And I think Lady Catherine de Burr is trying to preserve the Darcy DNA within her own family. She doesn't want it to go out to another lower class person. So there you are. That's my parallel. I thought that made me laugh when I thought about Lady Catherine de Burr as a kind of uh, arriving in her spaceship. That would be the sci-fi version of Pride and Prejudice, just begging to be written. Though actually looking at versions of it it probably has been written by somebody already hasn't it what that tells us is that Jane Austen had a quite a balanced version of what Mr Darcy is the flaws of the young man as well as his virtues but it's us isn't it we make our heroes and we have made Mr Darcy into our superhero because that is what our time does just look at what fills the cinemas Thank you for listening to What Would Jane Do? If you'd like to message me with any ideas for future episodes, please do leave uh, a message for me on social media or on my website. And until next time, don't forget, when in doubt, ask yourself, what would Jane do?